A run of high-profile factory closures is fueling claims of a growing crisis in New Zealand manufacturing. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks what's going on in the nation's factories and do things need to change. G'day, Stu. How are you? Are you really selling? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so- um, yeah, the place is under offer, sort of. Uh, um, After yeah. nine years in Port Chalmers near Dunedin, Stuart Johnston and his wife have just sold their family home and are reluctantly moving on. Uh, my wife also lost a job um, due to sort of like policies from the government with cutbacks in early education. Uh, so we've both found ourselves jobless, and so yeah, we're selling up to, to find work elsewhere. Mr Johnston's a boiler maker who worked for the last four years at Kiwi Rail's hillside workshops in South Dunedin. But last year the state-owned enterprise decided it would buy its trains from overseas and not make them in New Zealand anymore. It sold the site's foundry and closed the rest down, ending 130 years of history. As one of the site's union representatives, Stuart Johnston shouldered the negotiations over his and 90 workmates' redundancies, he says it's been a hard time. It's very stressful for the family. Uh, we've got uh, six-year-old twins that are at a local school here, small two-teacher school, that you know, they're going to be losing uh, two children out of their school. We've got two other children that you know, they were counting in the future for their roles. Um, and so that's going to impact potentially that school in, in just a, in a small way. But it is an impact because that's stressful for the children as well. Um, this has dragged on for quite some time and they don't understand why things have taken so long. Stuart Johnston's family is just one of thousands being sent into a spin. This is Radio New Zealand National, Namihi Otara. In today's programme, 100 jobs are cut at the T.Y. Point aluminium smelter in Southland. The captain... Oamaru residents are reeling after being told the town's second largest employer is shutting down. Nearly 200 workers at the Summit Wool Spinners plant in Oamaru were yesterday told their jobs are gone. The plant's being... The Engineering, Printing and Manufacturing Union says the job cuts at the North Skog paper mill in Kavarau are a clear indication New Zealand's in a jobs crisis. I'm Ian Telfer and this insight investigates the state of New Zealand's manufacturing industry. Since Hillside's closure at the end of last year, the streets in South Dunedin are quieter at lunchtime. But Stuart Johnston says the real effects he worries about are beneath the surface. It's going to be a real psychological impact for, like, for a lot of people. Like, rightly or wrongly, we all hold onto something in our lives, um, whether it's the millions of dollars that, sort of like, that certain people have, whether it's the car that you, sort of like, you, you, know, you love and look after in the backyard. Um, everyone's, we've all got things that we, sort of like, that we hold dear to and, and, uh, and that we, and gives us stability, that we know those things, we know those things are there um, and so we can rely on those things. And I think that's... A lot of generations um, across Dunedin relied on their sort of like their young men being able to go to Hillside and work. That a lot of people grew up wanting to go, wanting to follow in their father's footsteps or in their uncle's footsteps. They wanted to follow someone into Dunedin, from Dunedin into Hillside and have a career um, through through railways. Whether that led them on to other industries, but that's where they wanted to start their employment. Another person watching the impact of these southern factory closures is the chief executive of the Otago Chamber of Commerce, John Christie. Good morning, Otago Chamber of Commerce. John speaking. 
From his office in the centre of Dunedin, Mr Christie says each closure provokes a crisis for the families and communities affected. And together, they'll leave lasting damage. You're talking about a cultural downsizing, not just a downsizing in the, in the jobs itself. So, you know, in the case of Hillside, you know, that was a long institution here in Dunedin. You don't have to go very far down the street to talk to somebody who knows somebody that worked there um, or had a family member that worked there. And the same in Omaru with, with someone. You know, I mean, those are companies that have got a long history. So those closures, they haven't been overhyped. They do have a big effect. They definitely have a big effect. I mean, what we're talking about is um, sizeable redundancies in, in, in small communities based around a manufacturing sector, which has uh, an implication that there are often fly-on jobs that also get affected. So we often talk about those multipliers, and you know, for every job that's lost, there are others that get lost along the road. And you know, so, so part of that supply chain is also affected. And, and we know here in Dunedin, with the closure of Hillside, that did affect other engineering companies. It has affected other companies outside of the engineering field that were also suppliers of products or services. And you know, so to say that you know, the, there's, there is a direct effect, but it also ripples out to the wider community. Mr Christie says the problem is the region's historic factories have become uneconomic and can't compete internationally. He believes this is especially true in the commodity-based areas such as the manufacture of woollen carpets, which in the past have been among New Zealand's traditional strengths. What it says to me on the surface of it is that we're becoming less dependent on low-paying manufacturing jobs, but perhaps we're becoming more specialised in the manufacturing jobs that we do have. So. You know, is it a bad thing? I can't answer that. Would maybe be interesting to look at what the median rates of pay are within the manufacturing sector to see if that's changed. But if we're being smarter about it and we're manufacturing less, um, is it a crisis? I don't know. I'd like to think that um, you know, manufacturing still will play an important part of the New Zealand economy for a long time into the future. But obviously, we can't be dependent on those jobs, given that the rest of the world can produce for a lot less than we can in that sector. In quake-torn Christchurch, which needs a massive production of manufactured items for its rebuild, others are in no doubt crisis is the right word. The quake came on top of the five-year national and global economic downturn. Official statistics from the Household Labour Force Survey show about 40,000 jobs suddenly disappeared from the manufacturing sector in the middle of 2008. And though the figures have been up and down since, those jobs have not come back. In the pie chart of total jobs, the slice representing manufacturing has halved since 1985 to not much more than 10% of the total, and it's still falling. The chief executive of the Manufacturers and Exporters Association, John Wally, says the problems go well beyond the historic factories of the South to now threaten all of New Zealand's manufacturing sector. They're certainly as bad as I've ever seen it, and I've been in New Zealand since the mid-80s. And back then, when we looked at the liberalisation, we started to see a number of things like the motor industry, the TV manufacturing industry, that really had no, no place to play in New Zealand without protection barriers. Uh, they were disappearing, and that probably made a lot of sense. But I guess what we've seen now that's different than even the 90s is that very efficient and very capable people are, are unable to generate sufficient margin to make it worthwhile reinvesting in their businesses. So what's causing all these factory closures? 
John Wally believes the general populace doesn't feel the manufacturing sector is worth fighting for anymore. I think it's happening because we as a nation have the culture that thinks that farms are important and that manufacturing is an optional extra. I think that's the reason it happened in the UK, but the UK wasn't focused on farms, it was focused on financial services. And to some extent, in parts of the US, uh, the focus on the service and financial and real estate elements of the economy led to a belief that really all this sort of making things is an optional extra. We didn't see that in Germany, and it's been one of the strongest performing economies. There are other reasons too, but, but the Germans are focused on the things that make the things as well as making the things, um, and the Scandinavians. Mr Wally says the manufacturing companies he represents are focused on one big urgent problem, the high New Zealand exchange rate, especially against the US dollar. He's gloomy about the future, having no faith the public understands the danger. In the world of elaborate products, particular players are not competing directly. Essentially, supply chains compete with supply chains. And so, so if you're an elaborate manufacturer, you depend on stuff that your suppliers do for you too. Those elaborate supply chains in New Zealand are breaking down. Already, stuff that could be sourced in New Zealand we have to go to Australia for. That adds cost and adds time in the supply chain. And we are getting to the point of last man standing in a number of areas and each loss. When, when Electrolux was closed in Christchurch, two platers in Christchurch went out of business because there wasn't sufficient business already uh, left to support those platers. Those platers were supplying other people now that supply has to be sourced in, in Australia or out of the North Island. We are likely to see the loss of our export manufactured element in the economy. And I can't see any reason why we wouldn't lose it all. All this appears to build an open and shut case of a sector in crisis. But not everyone's convinced. We don't subscribe to the crisis theory. We think actually the manufacturing sector has been remarkably resilient given some very tough trading conditions that have probably been going on for about five years now. Catherine Beard is part of the largest business group in the country. As executive director of the Business New Zealand Arms, Manufacturing NZ and Export NZ, Ms Beard says the evidence is telling her a different story. So um, if you actually look at the figures, the sector is continuing to grow overall. So if, if you look at the statistics, it's grown by about a billion dollars. Uh, year in September 2012. Now it's gone up in value but slightly down in volume but that sort of also indicates that we are producing high value goods which is quite heartening. So there's no question that it's been a really tough sort of five years and that the high dollar is very challenging but also we have to take into account that manufacturers around the world have been doing it tough and a lot of it is due to just very flat demand. Catherine Beard says factory closures are hugely concerning for their workers and communities, but people need to look at the big picture. She says technological changes mean machines now do much of the menial repetitive work, and fewer people are needed to produce more. She says in some industrial areas the demand for traditional products is just not there anymore, 
as people turn from wool to synthetic carpets or give up paper for the digital world. To be sustainable in manufacturing, you've absolutely got to be incredibly close to your customers and anticipating their future needs. And if you look at um, countries that have very successful manufacturing in quite high-cost environments, such as in Europe, you know, Germany, um, been, there's been a lot of work done on what are the success factors of those companies. And, you know, one of the things they do is they're incredibly innovative. So they very, very close to their customers, um, always innovating for the next thing, and that's how they keep ahead of their competitors. They also very high value, so uh, and they often are very very niche. So they aim to dominate their global niche. So um, it's not true that you can't survive in a high cost manufacturing environment, but you have to be set up to meet the market. At a modern factory in a purpose built warehouse in Dunedin's Kaikoro Valley. A tradesman's grinding smooth the base of a purpose-built electrical cabinet. Its contents will soon run a robot in a fully automated lamb cutting room somewhere in New Zealand or Australia. This is Scott Technology, just the sort of company Catherine Beard was talking about. It's extremely specialised and a world leader in creating one-off automation systems which cut up meat carcasses or process rock samples for the mining industry. The company's chief executive, Chris Hopkins, says its specialty has been building machines which build machines. Put in a coil of steel at one end and you get the metal shell of a fridge or oven out the other. Uh, we've just completed a line that does cooktops um, for a company in the US. So this is a, a cooktop. They come to us with a cooktop. We did some product, helped them with some of the product design around it um, for so that it could be built for automation. And then we've um, just completed the line, just shipped that off to the US so that it'll go to a factory in the US to produce their, their oven cooktops for them, um, for their whole product range. Something like we've done oven cavities in the past, so we've built equipment that builds oven cavities. Um, something like about 70 or 80 percent of all the ovens in North America are built on Scott machinery. Um, so GE, Whirlpool, Electrolux all use our gear, even Wolf Appliances, um, which is a top-end oven, um, oven manufacturer. Scott Technologies not a new company. It turns 100 this year. Yet it's definitely not in crisis. The firm grew its sales by about 20% last year to more than $60 million. Its workforce has increased to 230 people. But Mr Hopkins says the company's only survived to become a global player in its niche by reinventing itself every five or ten years. For me, you know, we look at it as, as a global world, and, and so our market is anywhere in the, in the globe. If there's a manufacturing crisis or an issue in one area, then there's opportunity somewhere else because it must be growing. And if it's not growing, then it's not growing because there's no demand for it, and so you have to adapt to that. So there's not much point. I mean, there was a classic company that one of our staff worked for in Christchurch. Butter churns, made the best butter churns in the world. They were great, and business was fantastic. Then they changed the process overnight. There was no market for butter churns anymore. <laughs> that company went out, of, went out of business. That company had a crisis. Their crisis was that they weren't looking ahead to the trends and, and, and adapting and being flexible. So, <laughs> so and, and, well, I don't know, that was years ago. But they, these things, it'll, it'll be a continuous process. It's a, you're going to have to keep reinventing yourself and adapting and being flexible. And as I was saying, you know, if you're sitting on, even if you're sitting on the right track, if you stay there long enough, the train will hit you. <laughs> Scott's just one of many high-flying companies that include the likes of Fisher & Paykel Healthcare and Tate Electronics in Christchurch. 
that are earning hundreds of millions of dollars. But step down a level and it appears the average manufacturer is not doing well. Their plight has become one of the running political stories of the last six months. Supplementary question, the Honourable David Parker. G given the Minister's uh, preference to refer to value rather than jobs in manufacturing, why does he continue to claim the manufacturing sector is growing when the real value of manufacturing exports outside the primary sector has declined by 10 per cent since 2008 and 5 per cent in the last year? Honourable Stephen Joyce. Mr Speaker, the member is being incredibly disingenuous. So the After being blocked by the government from running a select committee investigation, four opposition parties, Labor, the Greens, New Zealand First and the Mana Party, have been holding their own manufacturing inquiry. So far, at least 25 companies have warned they and the sectors they operate in are in trouble. The number one complaint is the high value of the New Zealand dollar, which has run as high as 84 US cents. That's nowhere near its peak of one and a half US dollars in 1973, but the highest it's been since it was freed from government control in the 1980s. The high dollar means cheaper holidays for New Zealanders abroad, but on the flip side, exporters find it harder to sell higher priced New Zealand products overseas, and after converting currencies, get a lot less income when they do. Mike Eggers, who runs Whanganui-based helmet company Pacific Helmets, told the politicians the exchange rate has to be dealt to. We've been cannon fodder. We've been collateral damage to the currency trader, to the, the guys who are fostering a high exchange rate. And it's being fostered. The, the, there was no other way of putting it. Uh, the way I see it, uh, it can be lowered um, the same way as it can be lifted up. Uh, to be honest, I believe that it has had such a detrimental effect on manufacturing or on exporting that it's sapped out the equity that we have. But until now, the government's been consistent and unmovable. The Prime Minister, John Key, and his ministers reject all claims of a crisis, saying opposition parties have manufactured it, and the inquiry's just a political stunt. The Finance Minister, Bill English, has said intervention to lower the Kiwi dollar to help manufacturers can't be done without huge risks for taxpayers. Look, we accept the exchange rate at the current levels does, is putting pressure on our export sector. If we could choose a lower exchange rate, we probably would. But the fact is that our exchange rate is largely driven by external factors we can't influence, such as the, the choices that they make in Europe, the US and the UK about their monetary policy, and by long-term competitiveness of New Zealand, which we're trying to improve. Yet there are signs the government's beginning to shift. Last week, Mr English announced the Reserve Bank set to get new powers to dampen a housing price bubble in Auckland, with one of the likely side effects some downward pressure on the dollar. The Minister for Economic Development, Stephen Joyce, has revealed his ministry's been working on a new procurement policy. It might set out more factors than price to be taken into account when awarding government contracts. He says some of the changes could prove helpful to New Zealand companies. We can't say, oh, well, um, uh, this is, uh, you know, we're just going to have a blanket preference to New Zealand companies. But what we can do is make it more worthwhile for New Zealand companies to participate in these tenders. We can make it more worthwhile uh, for 
the public sector, if you like, to consult more closely with um, some of these companies before they actually go to tender so they can get a, a clear understanding of, of what's on offer. And also I think, and this is quite an important one, is the whole whole-of-life costs. Because if you're just going out to buy something, then you might just go for the cheapest thing up front. But if you're also expecting that to be serviced and to be looked after over a period of time, then that will bring a natural uh, tendency to be uh, involved with companies that are a little bit more closely associated and have a base in New Zealand. So there's, you know, there's all those sorts of things to consider. Mr Joyce says when the opposition inquiry report comes out in the middle of the year, he'll look at it, but within limits. Their inquiry is deliberately a political stunt, and I understand that, um, and that's fine. Uh, but I think there's also some genuine people that went to the inquiry and have some genuine concerns. And uh, as I said, you know, in those procurement areas, in the innovation space, and in the exchange rate space, the, the, the difficulty is that some people are trying to sell them snake oil solutions which don't exist. And um, and you know, some things we can change and can improve, and we're doing a lot of work of that through the business growth agenda, where we have you know, 300 odd initiatives, including in areas like procurement, R&D, uh, and skills, and those things we can do. Um, but to go out and suggest that you could just arbitrarily lower the New Zealand dollar at no cost to the country, at no cost to consumers, and at no cost to, uh, to, the, to the relative attractiveness of New Zealand as a place to live and work versus Australia is truly a snake oil solution. But the Labour Party's economic spokesperson, David Parker, is not deterred. He says the national-led government stuck in the past with a very old-fashioned view, and three key Labour policies would turn manufacturing around. You can have simplistic statements from the government saying, oh, there's nothing we can do. Well, that's just wrong. You know, it's obvious that if New Zealand had a different tax law, for example, we would have more money going into our manufacturing enterprises and less into land speculation, which is why a capital gains tax is important, even apart from the fairness angle for a capital gains tax. It's absolutely clear that if New Zealand had deeper savings through a universal KiwiSaver scheme, we would have lower cost of capital to our manufacturing businesses and they would be better able to compete. And it's also absolutely true that if New Zealand had a more competitive exchange rate, they would earn more for their products overseas. So no matter whether the, the market is in decline or on the increase, they would be more competitive within it. Last year, the Green Party also proposed a suite of policies. They want to lower the official cash rate set by the Reserve Bank, put in complementary measures to control house price inflation, and then create more cash in a process called quantitative easing to drive the Kiwi dollar down. The idea of printing money has been widely scorned because it could lead to inflation and make all imports and foreign purchases by New Zealanders more expensive. But Dr Norman says not much of the currency change goes directly into consumer prices and it's the only long-term solution. Yeah, it's certainly true that uh, flat-screen TVs aren't made in New Zealand, um, so you know it would have some impact on the price of flat-screen TVs, but you can't afford a flat-screen TV if you don't have a job. Um, and so where we're going at the moment, lots of people are being laid off as a result of the high New Zealand dollar. And the broader issue is that in terms of the external imbalances between New Zealand and the rest of the world, uh, it is a, a ridiculous strategy that the government's proposing, which is to have a high New Zealand dollar, then run large current account deficits, fund those deficits by borrowing from offshore and by selling more assets. That is not a sustainable strategy for New Zealand. But it's not just political parties putting up their ideas. In a submission to the opposition inquiry, the Council of Trade Unions proposed 31 things the government could do to support manufacturing more energetically. Those ideas include research and development tax credits, a green manufacturing jobs initiative 
active support of Canterbury rebuild manufacturers and direct investment into failing factories. Another pondering the future of manufacturing is a former aerospace engineer who now teaches factory management to Otago University business students. At a campus cafe, Richard Greatbanks says it would be a mistake for New Zealand to try direct intervention on the exchange rate. He says the most successful exporters are the ones putting their energy into adapting to the high dollar as the new norm. New Zealand is a very, very small currency in, by world markets and we could, we could break ourselves by trying to sort of influence that uh, and I think that's, that would do far more damage far more quickly to the economy than a, a, an ailing manufacturing, manufacturing sector that really has to reposition itself with new skills, new capabilities and a new outlook. But Dr Greatbanks says the crisis debate could be important if it spurs government to a raft of indirect and more thoughtful actions to help manufacturing companies. He says having Kiwi Rail shut down its Dunedin Railway workshops was a strategic mistake because now the country will forever be dependent on others for all train building. He says the same goes in many other areas. Once Hillside is shut down and that workforce dissipated, it's gone forever. You don't get those skills and capabilities back. And if we continue uh, as a nation to, to, to lose those skills and capabilities, then eventually we get to the point where we, don't, we can't make things or we can't uh, satisfy our domestic requirements and also compete internationally. And that's really that's a one-way track. You can't get back from it. Richard Greatbanks says manufacturing's changing fast, but with the right sort of help, should settle at a new, albeit reduced, place in the economy. You could argue that, say, 100 years ago, the, the, the skills of being able to till a field by hand or, or, or whatever else, we don't have those skills anymore. So there's a natural development, a natural progression here uh, of, of these sorts of skills. And it might be that the blue-collar uh, blue skills of turning and fitting and those manual skills are on the decrease. I don't think we'll ever get rid of them entirely. Those are critical, fundamental skills for engineering, but we will see a lot less of them. There's no doubt the pace of change, especially in the country's traditional manufacturing industries, is provoking a crisis for many workers, their families and communities. And as fears the crisis could spread to the rest of the nation's production appear to take hold, the calls for a major government intervention keep growing. I'm Ian Telfer and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Jeremy Veal.